unnamed barriter has posed a game. He's going to call others up out of the pitch so the demons can grab them and have even more fun torturing the damned. Do you think this is going to work? <laughs> then you don't know grifters and you don't know how they operate in the world or in the underworld as the case may be. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are in the fifth of the evil pouches that make up the eighth circle of hell. That is, we're in the fifth of the malabolgia that make up the circles of fraud or the subsets of fraud in lower hell, having come down over a cliff on the back of the beast of fraud. We are walking with our pilgrim and his guide Virgil slowly past the political grifters, and we have one who has posed a new game. If you're just dropping in here, I really encourage you to at least go back to the start of Canto 21 of Inferno to catch this entire passage about baritry, that is the selling of political offices or the taking of political kickbacks and bribes. But otherwise, we're just going to continue on. We're actually going to be at Canto 22, line 118, all the way through Canto 23, line 3. So we're going to cross another Canto divide in this passage. Hey, you readers, you're about to hear a whole new game. Each of the demons turned his sights on the banks of the side with the devil out in front who had been most opposed. The Neveries timed out everything really well. He planted his feet firmly on the ground and in a flash took the dive and got himself out of their designs. At that, each demon felt the pangs of guilt most of all the one who caused the blunder. He flew up and cried, Caught you in the act. But little good it did him. His wings couldn't overtake the guy's sheer terror. The sinner went under and the demon soared chest up in mid-flight, like when a puddle duck dives for the bottom the moment a falcon gets close. The bird of prey then swerves up again, all tormented and whipped. Frost Trampler, was so angry for being made into a fool that he went flying behind him, hoping the sinner would escape just so he could pick a fight. When the barrator had dropped from sight, Frost Trampler aimed his talons at Harlequin and put a wrestling hold on him above the ditch. But Harlequin had been well and fully fledged. He clawed back pretty good until they both tumbled down into the boiling muck. The heat immediately made them let go of each other, but because their wings were enlimed, there was no way for them to rise. Curly Beard, who was crying foul as much as the others, made four of the crew fly over to the opposite bank, each armed with one of their grappling hooks, and soon enough, they came down to their positions, stretching their hooks out to the stuck demons who were pretty well cooked to a crisp crust. And so we left them, messing around in that ditch. Hushed up by ourselves, without companions, we walked on, one in front, the other behind, like mendicant Franciscans going down a road.
a lot of story inside this passage. I want to talk about some odd notions that are coming out of the Baratree passages at the end, some, well, meta-literary pieces that are coming out of it. That is, pieces of the text that are about the text itself, meta-literary. I want to talk about the inversions in this text. I want to talk about the way this text is calling back to other texts inside of comedy. And then that final strange ending as Dante and Virgil slip away. I'll kind of refresh the plot for you as we go along. But let's start out from the very top talking about the inversions in the passage. I'm going to read this passage to you, explaining it in terms of the plot just as we go forward, but I want to stop on each of the inversions. The whole Baratry pouch, this fifth pouch, is built so much off inversions, uh, tails up, you know, heads down, the way Dante turns everything on its head, the way he makes things backwards from the way they should be. In this case, the big backwards is that Dante has been afraid of the demons and Virgil has been overconfident, but there are many, many more inversions that go on here. And let's just look at them as we go down the passage. It starts, hey, you readers, you're about to hear a whole new game. And I should just point out that this is the fifth of seven addresses to the reader in Inferno. When we get to the last one, the seventh of seven, we're going to stop and look at all seven of them together and notice how they change over the course of Inferno. But for now, let's just say this is the fifth of seven direct addresses to the reader in Inferno. And you know seven is important. The days of creation, the completion of creation. You know that seven's got all kinds of numerological readings behind it for Dante. But just for now, the fifth of seven. Hey, you readers, you're about to hear a whole new game. Each of the demons turned his sights on the other, on the banks of the side with the devil out in front who had been most opposed. What, and if you remember what's going on here, the demons have said they're going to back off the sloped embankment just a bit. Remember, it's all sloping down toward a central pit. They're going to back off just a little bit down that slope. And so if they back down toward the side that faces the sixth pit, they won't be seen on this sloping surface by the guys down in the pitch and the devil is out in front who most opposed this action that's badass dog or cagnazzo who said you know hey why trust this guy this political grifter what are we trusting him for to sit on the bank and call others up with his whistle that we talked about this in the last episode or two episodes ago maybe about badass dog and dante as both the ones who seem to have a clear-sighted notion of not trusting others as opposed to harlequin and virgil who both seem to want to trust people who shouldn't be trusted or in virgil's case demons who wouldn't want to be trusted so this navarese times it out really well he plants his feet firmly on the ground where he said he was going to sit remember he said he's going to it, but he plants his feet firmly on the ground, clue number one, and in a flash took the dive and got himself out of their designs. So this whole bit about I'm going to whistle and I'm going to call them up, no, it didn't work out. And that's the first inversion. The sinner wins against the demons, his divinely sanctioned tormentors. His score over them shows that he himself is, in fact, master of this situation in ways that they are supposed to be masters of it. Thus, 
an inversion. At that, the passage goes on, each demon felt the pangs of guilt or felt the remorse, the blow of remorse, or felt the kind of irritation at wrongdoing. That's another inversion. Demons don't feel remorse. At least normally in Western European Christianity, demons don't feel remorse. Oh, it's a whole different matter in Orthodox Christianity, but in Western Christian <laughs> in Western Christian Christianity, Western European Christianity, demons don't feel remorse. And here they feel the pangs of guilt, which makes no sense. That's my translation of the the blow of the wrongdoing in the passage. And again, it's a bit of an inversion. Demons shouldn't feel this way. They shouldn't feel any culpability for what goes on, but yet they do here. They feel remorse. Most of all, the one who caused the blunder. They seem more human than demon right here, which is another inversion in the passage. He, that is the guy who caused the blunder, is Harlequin, the one who said, oh, let's trust him and back up and let him call the others. So Harlequin uses his wings, flies up in the air, and screams out a little bit slangy, you gotcha, or caught in the act, or you're done for. Uh, We'd say something like that in English. He flies up, of course, to fly down on this guy. Because remember, Harlequin has said, if you if you try to fool us, I'll be on you before you can get in the pitch. Now, who believes that? Who believes that even uh, at, at, at normal speeds, which might be fast for a demon, at normal speeds, he could be backed off down a ledge and somehow catch this guy who just has to make a small dive into the pitch? And you'll notice there's another problem. There's another inversion. Safety is found in boiling pitch. Yet another inversion in the passage as a whole. Anyway, Harlequin goes up. Little good it did him. His wings couldn't overtake the guy's sheer terror. The sinner went under the demon's sword, chest up in mid-flight. So get this. It's really beautifully described by Dante. Get this. This guy goes down, you know, arcs. He's in his dive up and down and into the pitch. And as he's doing that, he hits the pitch. And the demon, seeing him go under... Uh, what it was, thrusts his chest up and he goes up in the air to avoid the pitch. So he's yelling at him, the guy goes under, and the demon, you know, like a jet taking off pulls up really fast mid-flight and Dante gives us a a simile to explain it Uh, like when a puddle duck I said a puddle duck it's a wild duck but a puddle duck is what works in uh, American English like when a puddle duck dives for the bottom the moment a falcon gets close so you know that when the when the falcon starts gets close the, the duck goes under the bird of prey then swerves up again all tormented and whipped there's an there's yet another inversion You've got a demon who is tormented, not tormenting. And this, again, just beautiful imagery of this barrator taking an arc to dive into the pitch, the demon going at him, seeing the guy go under, and then pulling up like a jet taking off off a runway to get out of the dive toward the pitch. It's really beautifully done by Dante and beautifully described. Frost Trampler got so angry for being that's Calcabrina, um, got so angry for being made into a fool that he went flying behind him. And the him here is Harlequin, not the sinner. He went flying behind Harlequin, hoping the sinner would escape just so he could pick a fight. When the barrier had dropped from sight, Frost Trampler aimed his talons at Harlequin and put a wrestling hold on him above the ditch. Yet another inversion. The demons are now at each other instead of at the damned. They should be busy 
tormenting the damned. Instead, they're busy picking fights with each other. Frost Trampler here has rammed his talons. They're all alone. There's all these bird images in the passage. Rammed his talons into Harlequin, and they're now wrestling in the air above the ditch. This is really dramatic. Dive into the pitch, swoop up like a jet taking off. Uh, Frost Trampler comes at him. They're now fighting in the air above the pitch. It's really nicely done. Mount Harlequin had been well and fully fledged. Notice all of these bird metaphors for the demons. Birds, birds of prey. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But also songbirds. A lot of falconry, of course. But also songbirds. All this bird-like imagery, natural world imagery for these demons, which is a, a little bit of an inversion. Not to say that demons are not natural. They are part of the created order. But nonetheless, there is this kind of above-world imagery for them below the world, which is a little bit of an inversion. Demons down below are flying up like birds near us fly up toward the heavens, especially think of the heavens as Dante would think of them as the place ultimately where God is. So it's a little bit of a nicely ironic theological inversion. Harlequin had been well and fully fledged. The passage goes on. He clawed back pretty good until they both tumbled down into the boiling muck. Get it? They're fallen angels. Demons are fallen angels. A little joke here about falling into the muck. The demons themselves are angels in Christian theology who have fallen out of the presence of God and into places like this. But you'll notice also there's another inversion here, and that is the Decurion, our 10-demon ensemble that were put, was put together with Curlybeard in the lead, has now fallen apart. So this Roman, what do I want to say, this Roman army enforcement, this Decurion, has now pulled apart at the seams, and they're fighting each other not as good Roman soldiers would do. The heat immediately made them let go of each other. The passage goes on. But because their wings were enlimed, that is, it's like the sticky stuff you put on the branches of trees to catch birds, particularly in the Middle Ages. So their wings have been caught in limed. There was no way for them to rise. So now, yet another inversion, the demons can't fly. Curlybeard, and you remember, he's in charge of the whole crew. He's the head of the Decurion, who was crying foul as much as the others, made four of the crew fly over the opposite bank, each arm with their grappling hooks. And soon enough, they came down to their position, stretching their hooks out to the stuck demons, where they were pretty well cooked to a crisp crust. Now, the cooks are cooked. Remember early on in Canto 21, we had that passage where it talked about the cooks who make their kitchen help, use forks to hold the meat down in the broth, and we talked about all these cooking and food imagery in the circle, sub-circles of fraud. Well, here at that back end of this story, it's all reversed. And instead of being the cooks who hold the sinners down into the stew, now the cooks are cooked at the end as these demons flail around in the boiling pitch. And now the end, we left them messing around in that dish, hushed up by ourselves without companions. We walked on one in front, the other behind, and noticed the now yet more inversion, a nice orderly procession, one in front, the other behind. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Like mendicant Franciscans going down 
a road. Notice all those crazy inversions in the passage, all the way the passage turns things upside down and on its head. And we're going to get to this ultimately. It turns comedy on its head, the entire structure of Inferno on its head. But before we get to that, let's look at some other problems inside this passage. There is this bird imagery that occurs, and it's a falconry image. We should note that this falconry image has been building here for a long time inside of Inferno. This is not the first time we've encountered falcons, and it won't be the last time. And I just want to remind you of the two previous moments where falcons occurred. The first time we really saw falcons was all the way back in Canto 3, when the damned are lining up along the river for Karen to boat them across to the other shore. And we had that simile as autumn leaves take flight and fall one after the other until the branch sees all its tattered colors on the ground. So too did these Adam's evil seed cast themselves one by one from that shore when the sign was given like a falcon to its lure. That's the first time we kind of caught this bird of prey or falconry image. And in this case, they were being, the damned were being lured onto Karen's boat in the same way that a falcon almost against its will, rather than swooping up into the sky, it comes back to its handler because there's meat on the hand, right, or the, on the gloved hand. They're being pulled in an unnatural way because their fears have turned into their desires. They're making this unnatural reaction of getting in Karen's boat, even though it's going to lead them to their damnation. That's the really first time falcons have appeared. But there's a second time that falcons occur, uh, before this passage with the demons, and that's when Garion is on the scene. Remember, they climb onto Garion's back, and Garion is going to take them down into the sub-pouches of fraud over the side of the cliff, and they're going to ride down on it his back. This is in Canto 17, starting at about line 127. And it says, as a falcon that has been too long on the wing and has sighted neither lure nor bird, makes the falconer cry, Ah, you're descending. And through many weary circles comes down again to where it set out swiftly and finally alights far from its master, full of sullen disdain. So to Garion set us in place. You'll notice that with the first image of the falconry in Inferno is of the falcon coming to the lure. This is of a falcon kind of staying away from the lure, just being disgusted that his master does not have the right food. He hasn't found any prey. And so he lands far off from his master, or in this case, right before the first of the evil pouches of fraud. You'll notice that progression, that there's a falcon who gets something the damned get in Karen's boat who are attracted to the lure. There's a falcon who is frustrated and lands all sullen and despondent because there wasn't prey or anything in the lure. And now we have these falcons who are completely ruined, who fly at each other and end up in the pitch. This is also interesting because the falcons are getting increasingly frustrated as we come down Inferno. The imagery of the falcons is becoming more and more a about the frustration or the inability of the falcons. And the reason this is all interesting is because this metaphor will ultimately be regenerated in comedy. 
ultimately, falcons will become the imagery used for angels later in the poem, and the angels will soar like falcons. So, this imagery is going downhill in Inferno before it starts going uphill in Purgatorio and Paradiso. This is so central to Dantean poetics. It is not that Dante drops a metaphor, let's say falcons, and then leaves it there. It's rather over the course of Inferno, Dante regenerates metaphors. I'm going to call you back to the notion of Jason and the Golden Fleece. We've already seen Jason in hell. We've already heard about Jason's frustrated voyage. We're going to hear more about it. And by the time we come to the end of Paradiso, Jason will have been renovated. Dante will claim to be the new Jason and the comedy itself, the golden fleece that he has brought back. Again, typical Dantean move to begin an image, to let it degrade, and then to take it in the opposite direction and regenerate it. And that is what's happening with Falcons ultimately over the course of Inferno. And there's another bit in the passage. We've seen it before. It's the moment of enliming. Remember this inside the passage we're in. They're fighting up in the air. They fall down into the muck. The heat immediately makes them let go of each other, so they quit wrestling. And then it says, because their wings were enlimed, there was no way for them to rise. Enlimed, as I explained to you, the lime you put, the sticky stuff you put on branches to catch birds. Okay, that enlimed has occurred already inside of Inferno. We saw it back in Canto 13 with the suicides at line 55 through 57. Pierre de la Vagna is being reticent about speaking, and he refers to uh, the nice way Virgil and Dante treat him as enliming him to speak more, that, that, that's, that their this sticky substance and their niceness causes this suicide who's turned into a tree to want to talk all the more. You'll notice there the enliming is for a somewhat positive purpose to get the suicide to tell more of his story. Here we're going down and here it is catching demons and there's not much good about this moment of enliming. It's the same with the falconry. These images are heading down. It's as if the complete poetic arc of Inferno is down, is slanted down toward that central pit. We're going to change all that ultimately when we get to purgatorio but for now let's just say it's slanted down toward that central pit and it's even happening inside the imagery in these passages crazy in and of itself so let's go back to that address to the reader in this passage because it's important to see it for what it might be the passage starts out, hey, you readers, you're about to hear a whole new game. I told you this was the fifth of seven addresses to the reader in Ferno. And the phrase here in the Florentine is uterai nuovo ludo. And it's that what I want to stick on. You're going to hear a new sport or you're going to hear a new game. What's so intriguing here is, of course, you might think that the new game you're going to hear is the wrestling match. Uh, the, these two demons are going to go up in the air. This very dramatic scene. You're going to get this kind of Greco-Roman wrestling going on in the air. They're going to hit the pitch below. I mean, this is all like a sporting event, right? Ludo, which can mean an athletic contest. It also can mean a gladiatorial fight. It's a Latinism in the text. Uh, 
derived from a word for, as I say, athletic contests or gladi- gladiatorial fights. Uh, it's it's a it's an interesting word. It jumps out because it's a Latinism in the phrase, and it kind of jumps out of the phrase itself. And the phrase says, "You're going to hear a new game." You know, here's the game, this wrestling match. But you know what? It also Ludo indicates in Dante's day, this Latinism is used to indicate theatrical plays. It's it used to indicate plays themselves as they go on. They would go on in street theater in medieval language. And you will notice that Frost Trampler later in the passage is angry for being made into a fool, a buffa, which is a standard theatrical medieval street play figure, the fool, the buffa. Uh, the Colombian Dadista Barolini makes much of this as a kind of ongoing play action in this passage itself and to bring up traditional folkloric characters like the fool in order to explain these events and thus ludo to her in this passage means that the play you're going to see another act of this play play out in front of you but let me offer a third reading you've got you can see a whole new athletic contest. You can see a whole new act in this play that even includes the fool on stage. Or let me say one more thing. Maybe Ludo refers to the passage itself. Hey, readers, you're about to watch comedy change, or I'm going to change the rules of comedy. Why do I say that? Because this is the largest stretch of narrative landscape without Virgil and Dante. There is one bit that is almost as long in Canto 30 ahead of us. But in that case, Dante is listening and actively listening to what's going on between two people. In this case, the pilgrim and his guide have disappeared out of the passage. And this is the longest stretch of any passage in which the two of them disappear. Yes, of course, Dante is silent while Francesca talks, but he's standing there listening. Now, we assume that Dante and Virgil are standing to the side here watching all of this. But as we watch the dramatic stuff that goes on inside this passage, the focus of it lands firmly on the demons. We are conscious of them and barely conscious that Dante and Virgil even exist in this passage. Remember, I told you the last time that there was a dramatic irony dropped. And once you drop that dramatic irony by telling us the Baritor has plans up his sleeve, once you drop that dramatic irony, the whole focus is going to shift onto the demons because now we know as the reader something the demons don't. This is the result. This is the result of dramatic irony. We have now got our action centered completely on the demons. Virgil and Dante are pushed to the side. And indeed, for Inferno, for comedy itself, this is a whole new game. This is a whole new way to conduct the writing of comedy. It is a whole new way to invert the pilgrim's progress. The pilgrim's progress is here stopped as we watch a street brawl between demons. Comedy itself, its forward momentum, has come to a stop as we watch a set piece about an athletic contest, or perhaps, if Barolini is right, a set piece out of medieval street theater in which the fool gets scuffed up a bit and starts part of a street brawl. All 
rather intriguing for the meta-literary, see, I told you we were going to get there, meta-literary functionality of the passage itself. It's wild. It is as if Dante is saying, hey, you know what? Let's play this game of comedy a little differently. Let's write a different kind of comedy in which our Pilgrim and Virgil are not necessarily the center of the action, at least for a few lines. And when they come back in at the end, uh, that's also a telling moment. The very last line of Canto 22, and so we left them, messing around in that ditch, and then on to Canto 23, hushed up by ourselves without companions, we walked on one in front, the other behind, like mendicant Franciscans going down the road. Note the crazy shift in tone. We have had this unbelievably anarchic and loud scene of the demons fighting and falling into the pitch and all of these crazy inversions happening and we come out of it into silence. We get this silence of, of friars walking down a road one in front of the other. The shift from chaos to quiet is so dramatic it almost takes your breath away at the end of the passage, when the Pilgrim and Virgil re-enter the scene at the end, it's the tonality so has shifted that we are forced to realize how unusual that scene was behind us in the background. Now we're back to what we know, them walking along. In one in front, the other behind is very important because, of course, it would be Virgil, the guide in front, and we'll find out in the next passage that is, in fact, the truth. It would be, anyway, Virgil in front and Dante behind because Virgil is the more, uh, what should we say, the elder statesman of the two of them, and he would be walking in front. It's a little bit ironic because Virgil is the one who put his confidence in the demons. We will see in the next passage that that was misplaced confidence. Um, we're not done with these demons. We're going to see in the next passage that that was misplaced confidence, and yet Virgil is still leading and Dante is still following, which is an inversion of badass dog leading at the start of this passage. Remember when they backed up down the ridge, the devil out in front was the first one down, the one who had been most opposed. So in that sequence, if Badass Dog is the doubter in the way that Dante is the doubter of the demon's good faith, Badass Dog was in the lead there. But when we come out at the end of this passage, Virgil is in the lead and Dante is following. So the doubter is following the leader. Yet one more inversion as the tonality of the passage completely changes. It gets quiet because it's heading toward the most dramatic moment of interiority yet in Inferno. But to get there, you're going to have to subscribe to this podcast. Come back next time. We will have the most dramatic moment in which Dante himself expresses his inner states, expresses them verbally, and these inner states are all predicated on an act of, well, can it get more meta-literary? All predicated on literary analysis. So subscribe. <laughs> Stick around. There's so much more. If you want, please rate the podcast. Please drop a comment. I would really appreciate that. Thanks for being on the walk with me. And we're not done with the demons. Oh, thank goodness. We got one more big passage to go in Canto 23. So come back next time. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante. See you then.